Well, welcome everybody back to another episode of the Blue Banter Podcast, a podcast where we're striving to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and also to glean wisdom from men with ministry experience for those who are aspiring to or just starting off in pastoral ministry. I am one of your co-hosts, Joe Smith, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. And my name is Aaron, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in Marion, Indiana. And I just want to get a little bit of uh, something out of the way here. You might uh, hear things a little bit different than uh, normal. I normally record in my office, but I'm uh, here in my living room or dining room right now because my wife is uh, away getting an ultrasound. So I've got my daughter sleeping in the room behind me. So if you hear uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, you, you know what that is. But hopefully you're not going to hear any weeping and gnashing of teeth from our guest this morning, who is Brad Johnston, pastor of Topeka Reformed Presbyterian Church in Topeka, Kansas. Brad, thank you and welcome to the uh, podcast. You bet. Great to be here, guys. Yeah, it's great to have you. And uh, providentially, you know, our last episode, Joe and I were talking about kind of the benefits of our Presbytery family camps, and uh, you just were uh, speaking at the uh, Iowa family camp. And um, would you mind kind of telling us what that topic was that you were speaking on? Maybe tell us a little bit about that and then uh, where people can find that. Yeah, sure. Um, well, so the uh, if you remember the um, Midwest Presbytery, we have two camps at opposite ends of the Presbytery. So this was our eastern camp. Uh, had about 100 and I think about 150 at Iowa Family Camp. And I got to speak uh, uh, really four and a half lectures. It wound up being five, but uh, uh, on the subject of heaven. And uh, it was very exciting to uh, really bring together, I'd say probably over the last 10, 10 or 12 years, kind of uh, just a growing conviction we can talk about the Bible and the future without talking, without using the word eschatology, number one, and number two, without talking about the millennium. And I really think that a biblical theology of heaven ought to be what drives our vision of the future. Uh, we can debate various exegetical approaches to Revelation, but what I did is really from Genesis to Revelation, a biblical theology of heaven. And, um, Brought in a lot from uh, uh, from the RP testimony, from the Westminster Confession. There's just some really thought provoking and clear statements there. So anyway, it was a, it was great. So those are up. Those are on our church website, uh, Topeka Reformed Press Press P R E S with one S uh, dot org. Uh, if people are interested in that. Mm -hmm. Well, so on uh, on Friday of last week. Uh, we had the Gregory's who were at the uh, family camp, George Gregory and his family. Uh, he stayed with us and he had good things to say. And then on Saturday night, we had John Edgar and his son who were also at the family camp and they had uh, really good things to say. So if you're interested in the topic of heaven, you can uh, go to the website that uh, Pastor Johnson mentioned and uh, benefit from that. Um, with that, let's uh, jump into uh, our first set of questions here. This is uh, another thing that uh, you've put together Um I guess it's been a few years now, but you wrote a book called 150 Questions About the Psalter. Um, and my estimation, I think this book kind of flew under the radar a little bit. Um, but what can you tell us about the book? Um, can you talk about the history behind it, uh, why you wrote it, maybe the structure of the book itself? Yeah, sure. It's uh, um, not not a bestseller, which is OK. Um, it's uh, I would say got a pretty narrow focus, and that is. My goal was to 
uh, introduce people who um, have have never been in a in a in a psalm singing church, kind of how to approach the Psalter. I've wrestled with that for a while. Um, you know, saw a lot of I guess I would say technical approaches, but I decided I was going to use this question answer approach, um, really kind of a catechism uh, format, introducing the Psalter. And uh, so, yeah, I finished I finished uh, my work on the book uh, in uh, 2014. So it's been just about 10 years and um, um, just really what um, um, just had never found something that was the two things I wanted was a simplicity of presentation, but also um, serious end notes where people could dive more deeply into that topic. I think those were the two things that I was really after. Uh, so yeah, 150 questions about the Psalter, what you need to know about the songs God wrote, and um, uh, wanted to really have a have a Christ-centered approach, wanted to have a winsome statement of, um, uh, of an, uh, a um, exclusive psalmody understanding of several key verses in the New Testament. Um, don't focus on that, but certainly did, did address that. Um, and then, and then just to really bring in, I would say kind of quotations over, um, over church history, um, other things just about the beauty and the glory of the Psalms, um, whether it's Martin Luther, whether it's Calvin, whether it's Ligon Duncan, he's kind of my, my most recent, I could not believe some of the things that Ligon Duncan has said about the Psalter. So I tried to pull out, you know, kind of a block quote, you know, from some of those guys. And um, so it's not designed to be memorized in any way, but I just have found that question and answer thing uh, to be uh, really useful. I uh, actually dedicated it to my kids. Um, I said, uh, um, I, I sort of field tested this as I was going through they meditated with me on the Psalter in family devotions. And so that really was kind of the wh where I was seeing, oh, there's a need for something here. And, you know, we just had had copies. This was of my manuscript before it was published, but copies for each one of the kids. At, you know, me ask a question, they answer it. Me ask a question, the next one answers it. Just a really straightforward way to get, you know, get some of that content in front of them. Yeah, I uh, unfortunately I forgot the book in my office, but uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was kind of the appendix of the book. I thought really a lot of the good, like it's all good, but um, a lot of the really good material I found was in the appendix, actually. Um, uh -huh. And so what, uh, again, I don't have it in front of me, but I know you had one section where you basically kind of had to fill it out yourself, all the different um, mm -hmm. genres and the different books of the Psalter. Um, there were yeah. a few other things in there uh, that I thought were really interesting. Yeah. So, and let, let me say, this is, uh, again, I think helps people understand the point of it is, um, it, so the book itself, I'll start there and then I'll go to the appendix. The book itself has seven sections. Um, and uh, I decided, okay, I'm just going to use biblical numbers here. So seven sections, 150 questions. Um, and, uh, um, and so, you know, I had just a very few questions for each one of those seven sections. And so, um, you know, uh, uh e there were, there were those, and then I had all this material. There was just no way you could fit it into like a simple question. 
And so I decided I was also going to do a, a, a number of different appendices and uh, just, I would say either insights along the way. So like appendix one is the life of David in the Psalms. And, um, um, you know, I believe David in the old Testament is a type of Christ, but if we can put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience of the Psalter, these were people who regarded David as the friend of God, uh, a man after God's own heart. Um, this was a man who, who, who had walked with God and thus his life was worthy of emulation. And so the uh, life, or I've even used the, also used the phrase, the example of David Psalms. There's a whole series of, of them, 14 different Psalms that, in their in the inscription of the psalm, um, memorialize and laud David's activities, this notable thing, this glorious thing that he did. And then the psalm itself is David's reflections while he was doing that. And so there really is both look at the noble example of David, but also understand the heart out of which David is operating. And uh, and I think that we see and then as Christians, then we see David is a type of Christ. And so this really is a reflection ultimately on Jesus, both his work, but also his character, um, who he is and how he's thinking. Um, so that that that's one that um, is an example. And then, yeah, the other thing is. I try. I tried throughout the book to focus on. I would say the structure of the Psalter. You know, we're we're accustomed to Western um, tables of contents. Mine has several has a table of contents and all that. But then when we come to the Psalter, it just sort of feels like a like a mishmash, and we're trying to wrap our minds. There are five books in the Psalter. Um, um, that that's as ancient, you know, going back to even before the time of Christ, that division in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, there are general thematic statements we can make about the five books, but I found it really helpful to begin to group Psalms together. Um, not, not so much thematically, it's not merely themes, but it's different features of different Psalms. And so the Messianic Psalms, the, the direct, I call them the direct Messianic Psalms, for example, um, which are specifically quoted in the New Testament. And then another group of indirect Messianic Psalms, uh, the examples of David's Psalms, um, and then seeing some of the, the collections like the Psalms of Ascent or uh, the Great Hallel, you know, there's different sections. And so that's one thing that I know I struggled with for a long time is how do I really wrap my mind around? There's all these different Psalms. Many of them are related, but they, they all have something unique. How do I, how do I wrap my mind around that? And so one of the early exercises I did as I was preparing to write was to get a big piece of paper and make 150 little, little looks like the end of a book spine and just start making notes. And that was actually a really helpful discipline. Yeah, as I was uh, looking through it, I thought uh, this is a this is a good little like 
quick stop um, booklet or book for um, psalm explanations. You know, that's kind of something that, that we do in the RPCNA is do a brief psalm explanation. And I thought this is actually really helpful to kind of quickly orient me as to where I am in the Psalter, what what the general gist of the book is, and then particularly the psalm itself. Mm-hmm. So yeah. your, your little and, book and there this is... this is probably a good point to just plug. Um, I haven't, I haven't, it's not coming out yet, but I am working on 150 meditations on the Psalter. Mm-hmm that's going to hopefully be kind of that next step taking the skeleton if you will of 150 questions and now trying to bring those insights into a just real you know base level simple psalm explanation that somebody could just flip to and have the basic mm-hmm. you know guts of that psalm uh, mm-hmm. probably a, a, a brief little outline Again, one of the priorities, and let, let me say this, um, I'm persuaded that if the, the Christian church as a whole is going to embrace and rejoice in the Psalter, we have got to help people see Christ, Christ, Christ in the Psalter. When that's there, all the rest. So like one thing I always forget, um, uh, the, 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 you know, I hear people ask, I've had people ask me numerous times, well, where's, where's, um, um, but the name of Jesus isn't in the Psalter. I want to sing the name of Jesus. And I say, well, you know, his name in Hebrew, right? Yeshua, you know, his name in Latin, it's Yesu. Um, and this is the word salvation. How many times do you think the word salvation is used in the Psalter? I can show it to you in Hebrew. Y-S-U. Y-S-U, and it's hundreds of times that either save, which is also the, the word, or salvation, hundreds of times that it's used in the Psalter. So that's just one little example of where we need to learn to see Christ. Oh, he's going to send his salvation. That's Jesus right there. He will save his people from their sins in the person of Christ. Yeah, and, and the name Lord as well. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Like, there, over there's, and, over there, and, and it just layered up. Right. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And there's the word, uh, the word um, Adonai, um, with Lord as in master. But then there's also the name Lord, um, uh, the, the sacred tetragrammaton, Yahweh. Um, both of those, I think, are encompassed in us confessing that Jesus is Lord. Well, Brad, you might be interested to know that whenever I'm uh, trying to do psalm explanations, I've got Spurgeon, I've got Dixon, and I've got Johnston. All, oh, all next wow. Right there. Okay, there you go. I like it. I like it. Wonderful. Cool. Nice. Thanks, Brad, for that. Um, and this was something I was curious about ever since really, I think it was at my first presbytery meeting where I was actually a presbyter and not just a student under care. It was at a last fall's Midwest meeting. It came about, and if I remember right, I may have even had the privilege of praying for Topeka and praying for you, um, preaching through Daniel. You had started preaching through Daniel, and I don't know if you've finished that now or took a pause or not, but um, anyways, Daniel is just one of those books um, that in many ways is like the book of Revelation. It's uh, There are uh, difficult parts uh, in, in those books, much debated parts. And so just curious uh, what, what your own experience has been preaching through that book and what have been some of the greatest joys and challenges of preaching through it. 
Yeah, sure. Good question. Um, the uh, uh, so I I decided I wasn't going to um, belabor the preaching. Uh, I think I did did the did Daniel in about twenty five sermons. So you know, um, half a year, and uh, that that went uh, I think very well. And uh, yeah, a few things. Uh, so first of all, one of the things that I've tried to do is I've tried to help um, members of my congregation have some kind of, you know, visible or mental picture that they can wrap themselves around. And so I have here and I'll, I'll hold it up, but kind of explain it as well is, uh, this is from the Bible project, um, um, uh, the Bible project.org. And, uh, they have these, um, one page posters summarizing the, the big picture of different books of the Bible. Um, so this was one, it was really neat. I would, as I was getting into the next chapter, I would sit down and I'd usually take about 20 minutes and just very carefully, very, you know, really think through what is this saying and how is it that this is informing me. And so, um, at the end, um, I actually have this framed now and up on my wall. Um, and it just represents so much and several insights that came to me from careful attention to the pictures hmm. um, like, Oh, I never thought about, you know, this particular. So like the one thing is um, the one who has uh, um, 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 uh, and I'm trying to think here if this is revelation or Daniel, but anyway, it talks about the, the, the great beast who has 10 horns mm -hmm. and they had a way of showing the 10 horns that I was like, Oh, that's gross. Yeah. There's no natural animal who has 10 horns. Right. This is something supernatural. Um, mm -hmm. The first three beasts are regular animals. And then this thing is some, you know, freak of, you know, freakish animal mm -hmm. that is great and mighty. And Daniel seems preoccupied with, so who is this fourth beast? And that, that ties in. So, yeah, I think that that was helpful to be able to, you know, so I, I, I passed that out to our whole congregation. Uh, several of the kids went through and colored it, you know, um, uh, and just that was a great way to be able to interact with some of the kids. Uh, but I also decided I'm not going to belabor it. You know, uh, one of the, th the challenges is I need to do the deep study. Um, and maybe this is where I had to mention um, the book I found really helpful is called Daniel for You by David Helm. Uh, I've met Dave Helm. He's an OP pastor um, at uh, um, Holy Trinity Church, um, Hyde Park Congregation. Uh, he's the director of Charles Simeon Trust. And uh, I had several other commentaries I was working from, but consistently he was hitting at the key um preaching points of each of each sermon and uh just found it very useful i think i would say in a nutshell it's seeing that even as god's people were under judgment in the babylonian captivity they also were now being thrust to the front to the front edge of god's plan to bring the gospel to the gentiles I hadn't thought about that before. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is because they are in Babylon, therefore Babylon is now a recipient of God's grace and mercy, mm -hmm. at least for a time. 
I, I would say in the realm of common grace. I think there were probably Babylonians who came to Christ, but, you know, particularly Daniel and his three friends, just the dynamic of what does it mean to live faithfully for God among the Gentiles? And I think that the church today more and more is aware that, oh, wait, we're a minority, you know, Bible-believing Christians among among a crooked and perverse generation. And our job is not to hide our light under a bushel. It's to shine as lights in the world um, that people will see not us, but they'll see the God who has saved us. Um, so I think there's a lot there. Um, you may have more questions, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that that's what one of the follow ups was going to be what, you know, playing playing off your subtitle of uh, 150 questions about the Psalms. Um, it, when it comes to Daniel, a few things our audience needs to know about that book that God wrote. And, and some of them you've already touched on. One of them, one of the great values of that book to us today is that uh, we live in a similar uh, redemptive historical context where we find ourselves and we we see these things being fulfilled in in the world around us and there's much teaching in Daniel about how we're to live in this world and witness in this world and and what God's doing in this world and in history um so either feel free to expand upon that a little more or maybe you would say that is that is the main thing uh, that that the audience can glean from Daniel, or were there some other some other key points that perhaps you brought out or or found helpful, or that your specific congregation found helpful as as to kind of the glory of the book of Daniel and 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 what we can glean from it today? Yeah, um, well, a couple things. Um, so first of all, I think there's a lot of interesting um, just information that has been gleaned and now is available pretty readily on the internet. Um, there's a group that I've used called the Associates um, for Biblical Research, uh, BibleArchaeology.org, um, Bible-believing organization that are, um, um, that are really dedicated to kind of bringing good academic quality archaeology and interpreting it from a perspective of uh, the Bible as the word of God. And uh, so that that has really kind of been a, a new area of real interest and even passion for me. Um, so just as an example, if you go over to some of these, um, to some of the sites, like, like we know the rooms Daniel was in when certain events happened, like, 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 you know, I looked at it on Google Earth and it's like, OK, he came around that corner and he's, you know, it's like described in the book of Daniel. And you're like, oh, that's it right there. You know, hmm. stuff like that, that is kind of uncanny, you know, hmm. how because of good archaeology, you know, because of radical destruction, things laid under sand for thousands and thousands of years now now carefully you know good quality academic research is being done those things have been preserved and now are becoming more popular um so so like um even the sites of daniel uh daniel's an honored prophet among the among muslims as well so there's actually a fairly steady tourist thing and i think there's going to be a lot more in the future where people go and 
you know, Muslims and Christians and Jews all go to see these sites, um, um, you know, in modern day Iran. Uh, quite interesting to uh, just be aware of some of those things. So uh, so I think one thing that's helpful is understanding the kings, the order of the kings and the different dynasties, what year Daniel has a lot of these visions and they're dated very specifically so you can get a sense. They're not in chronological order. They really are more of a thematic order. Um, Daniel's one of the, the few books in the Bible that has two languages in it. So you're going between Hebrew and Aramaic. And I think there's uh, significance to that. One of the things that I made a big deal of when I preached through this is I, I really wanted my congregation to see Christ in Daniel exegetically. I didn't want to do metaphors. I didn't want to do analogies. I wanted people to see, and I believe there are there are there are three solid, clear um, Jesus prophecies. Um, one is uh, the stone and uh, the 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 um, um, uh, the, um, the statue, the stone mm -hmm. that destroys the feet of the statue, the feet representing the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. um, another one. Um, dealing with uh, um, uh, with the 70 weeks prophecy. Uh, that's in uh, Daniel chapter 9. And then thirdly, and the one that I'm most excited about even to this moment is uh, Daniel chapter 7. Mm -hmm. I'm really persuaded that Daniel chapter 7 has two things in it. Number one is the mediatorial kingship of Christ. Um, mm -hmm. Most people have never thought through that as God, Jesus has always been king. He didn't need to become king. But as the God-man, now he is given a kingdom mm -hmm. that all peoples, nations, and languages might serve him. What's important is, and the reason it's important that we stand publicly for Christ, is because God is demonstrating the superiority of his plan in uniting all the nations together in the God man in the, the resurrected, um, ascended God man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's really, uh, you know, and uh, th that idea of the mediatorial kingship of Christ really is kind of an oddity about our denomination that shouldn't be an oddity. This should be understood far and wide. What do we mean when we say the mediatorial kingship? Mm -hmm. Christ is king as the god man mm -hmm. um as the creator who has entered into his creation continuing to be what he was namely god he became what he was not namely man and now reigns as a human king this is why it's immoral for governments to take to themselves godlike power um and the second thing in daniel 7 is that the kingdom is given three different times it says the kingdom is given to the saints. Mm -hmm. This kingdom is held by the father, but now is being given to the saints. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's been uh, a, a very interesting. Now I begin to see why Paul calls even the Thessalonians baby Christians. He says, mm -hmm. you guys are saints right alongside of, you know, all the noble and why the Roman Catholic view of sainthood is so mm -hmm. damaging to this understanding of the priesthood of all believers. 
that mm-hmm. all those who are united to Christ share in mm-hmm. this noble way and that Christ rules over us. And yes, all authority comes from God, but that authority is to be used according to God's plan and God's law, mm-hmm. not in an arbitrary, bureaucratic, capricious or arbitrary way. Sure. Sure. Do you um and, and and these wouldn't be the type of prophecies and and the um the explicit kind of prophecies of Christ that you spoke about, but I'm I'm just curious and, and not having done a deep dive myself, there may be arguments to the contrary, but but would you see pre-incarnate appearances of Christ there in the furnace and then maybe even in Michael um coming to to the angel's defense in Daniel 10 or, or did, yeah, did you I, I, I've wrestled with that. And, um, I, I certainly presented that view to my congregation. Um, I think as, uh, again, here, here's the danger is, is you can see, uh, you know, um, you know, when we know Christ, these things are very obvious, but, from you know, but from an exegetical point of view, what is it here that is unique about Christ, right? Uh, so in the uh, uh, and I and I actually would tend to agree. So like I I preach from the ESV uh, version, and so in the um, um, uh, in the um, uh, the Daniel and uh, or sorry in the fiery furnace, it, and it makes reference to a son of the gods. Mm. Um, I like the idea of, oh, here is the son of God in a New Testament sense, but I don't think that's what the, in that case, the Aramaic phrase meant to the original audience. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a great deal that we can press into. Again, I presented these things. This may well be, but, um, but what does it mean? Grammatical, historical, and then we get to our theological context. Sure, um, sure. And uh, and I guess let me say another thing that I think I tried to follow here, and that is um, I wanted to be humble and transparent. Um, the things that I was confident in, I wanted to really preach, mm. and the things that I was exploring and grappling with, I wanted to present those as, you know, now this next verse, this is this is a bit of a, you know, this is a bit of a, of a challenge. And so here's two views or, you know, I I did various things. Um, uh, I remember one I did, here's four views. And I was thinking about those four views, commentaries that have been done, you know, um, on different doctrinal questions. Um, And so I think I, I wanted my congregation to see that I was laboring and that I don't just come to snap conclusions that I'm doing the work. And this is where, this is what I understand right now, but there's also this view. There's also this view. I think that's been helpful. Yeah. And that kind of ties right into kind of the other question I wanted to ask you, you think about books like Daniel and um, even the other major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, take, take Zechariah in there as well. I'm thinking about these books that Revelation is drawing on and and then the book of Revelation itself. So these, these very difficult um, 
prophetic and apocalyptic in places books. I was going to ask you kind of having preached through those and, and, and having more pastoral experience, just some tips and counsel uh, to younger guys or even guys that are in seminary that, that may Lord willing become pastors tips and counsel when it comes to preaching these books. And I think you just gave one very valuable one. I just noted it down when you're preaching a book like that, be humble, be transparent, but really focus on preaching those things uh, that you really have convictions about and are very clear from the text. But is there, I mean, that's a great one. Is there anything else beyond that that you would counsel? Yeah. So I think one of the, um, uh, and I, and I had a good background in getting started in this in seminary, but it's the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. How are, because it's very nuanced. Um, sometimes the auth, you know, Peter or J- or John or Matthew are quoting a, a, an explicitly Christological phrase, expecting you to see what's in the next verse or in the verse just before. Um, uh, so like, like, like one that comes to mind is when, uh, when Jesus is in the wilderness and um, and Satan comes to him and, and he says, um, 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 throw yourself down for it is written. He he, uh, he will charge his angels concerning you. Well, the next verse is um, you shall trample serpents, lions, tread on all your deadly foes. N- nothing evil will befall you. And even even to the point of death, Jesus is trusting his father because he knows that his father um it has has made a promise and and he's faithful christ is faithful to uh um and then and then the father is faithful to raise up our lord jesus christ from the dead and uh so that that's an example where you know yeah he he quotes that but he wants your mind to go a little bit further so bottom line one of my, one of the tips that i've given to a number of seminary guys is get in the habit first of all do not Fall into the trap of thinking your Bible, the, the pages on your Bible are somehow too holy to mark. Um, when I, Whenever I read my Bible now, at this point in my life, I read with a pen in my hand or a, a highlighter. You, I, 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 I'd, I'd try to show you, but your listeners wouldn't be able to see. But my Bible is just chewed up. You know, it's uh, circles and all kinds of little notations that I've made. And one of the main purposes of that is... Number one, to read in the New Testament and to learn to see the quotations, the the allusions. Um, those are kind of the two extremes. So where it's quoted, is it quoted in the in the Septuagint or is it quoted in Hebrew? Um, I, I mean, in the in the um, Masoretic text. Um, and then I guess I would say citations where. They're not quoting it exactly, but enough to get the point. And and when those quotations are different, why are they different? That's a whole nother area of study. And then thirdly is where with a single word, the, um, the writer can call on all these people who all grew up singing psalms. That's the other thing is remember, these are Jewish writers speaking to usually predominantly Jewish original audience who all learned the psalms in the synagogue and so a single word or a single phrase can can be a rich source you you know there's no way you could source that as oh this is a quotation 
but it is a it is an allusion to a psalm that brings great depth to that passage and so that's the first step is is the use of the old testament in the new and then what i started doing is now when i read the old testament i'm trying to keep an eye out um i have a bible that that will will with a footnote will say this is cited in this new testament book so now i'm filling in the old testament with new testament references and so beginning to see the book as a as an, an organic whole and i think that becomes really important when you when you come to the book of revelation i mm-hmm. i and here here again be humble um if i know a guy 2 years out of seminary who has a clear eschatological position that he's arguing for i'm like dude do you understand actually understand any of the other positions this is the most complex question and we're dealing with the future so you do not want to become a false prophet mm-hmm. if you go around confidently asserting what's going to happen in the future and it doesn't happen mm-hmm. um i know i know a guy who uh who was that guy? I think it was Harold Camping. Um, I know a guy who did an internship with Harold with Harold Camping, and um, the guy just went off the deep end. And he brought tremendous uh, mockery and derision to the body of Christ because he went way beyond anything the Scripture says and entered into the realm of speculation. Well, that uh, kind of transitions nicely into our, our next question, which is, uh, as our listeners know, kind of our perennial question that we ask all of our guests, and, and that is uh, fundamentally uh, preaching. So we've been talking primarily about this particular book that you've been preaching through Daniel, but now we'd like to broaden it a little bit and kind of ask, what is your philosophy of preaching? Not to be confused with philosophy of ministry, but philosophy of preaching. And then what does your uh, weekend, week out sermon preparation look like? What would you take up to the pulpit, manuscript, bullet points, no notes, that kind of thing? Uh-huh. Yeah, this is this is a, an important question. Um, and again, years, years in development, um, you know, tweaks here and there. Um, so a couple things. First of all, um, I, I started out being a very clear outline preacher. Um, my... It was actually my mother who, you know, she would always chide my dad. I don't, I, I can't fit what you're saying into anything bigger about the sermon as a whole. And so my dad started using, uh, using a sermon outline and she loved it. And uh, so that stuck with me. So when I got in, I was like, okay. And so what I, what I do is I try to have a sermon outline on the back of the bulletin with like one or two blanks, you know, in each in each of the points. Usually it's just the main points, not subpoints, but one or two words to fill in. And uh so it's become something of a uh of a contest to see, you know, can all the kids get them filled out? There's one person at least for a while who was giving candy if you got all the blanks filled out. You know, that's become kind of the thing and that I think really facilitates careful listening and learning um seeing my own children develop in that and really you know becoming more proficient at how to listen to the complexities of a of a textually based sermon and draw out whether it's practical applications or um you know whatever interpretations whatever the case may be um so that's been something that's been helpful so my weekly approach is um 
you know, beginning on Monday, I'm I'm reading reading my text, um, you know, looking at a few commentaries. I don't I don't do a lot and I don't quote a lot of commentaries, but the goal is uh, to get to that to that outline that outline the homiletical points of my sermon. That's really what I'm driving for. Uh, and so Thursday night at six o'clock is when I'm supposed to have uh, that plus the order of worship into uh, into the secretary. And so that's been a good um, kind of discipline. Um, I haven't done perfect, but I'm but I've gotten a lot better and a lot more regular at that. And so that really does mean that my sermon prep tends to be in the front part of the week, which I really like. If I get that done, especially if I get it done, you know, Thursday noon, early afternoon. Now I've got Friday and, you know, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday to really do more ministry related things. And so I, um, uh, and so that's been really helpful for me. So the way that I've done it, I, I, I now do all, most all my preaching, not every sermon, but most all my preaching from my iPad. So I'm composing on my computer, saving it in Dropbox as a Word document. So when I go into the pulpit, um, I'll have my Bible and I'll have my iPad and that and and the bulletin of whatever service that I'm in. You know, that's really the extent of it. Um, another interesting thing. So I said I started with outline preaching, but I began to realize that um at least the way my mind works, it's when I'm getting ready to get to a significant transition that I'm trying to work ahead and connect what I'm saying at this moment with where I'm trying to get to. And I would muddle those transitions. And so I've found myself over time, whether it's an introduction, whether it's a transition, whether it's the application, those are the places, those three things have been the things that have really stood out to me that um, I need to be precise. I need to nail this. If the people can see how point one is related to point two, usually it's just a few words, but I got to get those right. And so I've moved, I wouldn't say to a manuscript per se, but I've moved to an outline with, you know, okay, this paragraph I'm going to read. Um, this is a transition that I need to, that I need to hit, hit, hit clearly. And that leads to both a greater ability for me to think about what's the next step, what's the, what, you know, and, and now I can do that a little more extemporaneously than I used to be able to. But also um, it, it forces me to work ahead and not just muddle through it. Yeah. Um, as far as uh, kind of philosophy of preaching and things like that go, um like what would you see what what are you trying to accomplish in every sermon and um what it, what it, what would you say is the goal of preaching in general uh I th I think those are there I may have another follow up question but Sure yeah that's fine. Yeah so um and I would say there's I I would say there's there's three levels at which I would answer that question. First of all is um, we determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. First Corinthians two um, that, you know, preach Christ, Christ that every sermon needs to come back to the person or the work of Christ. 
in a textually appropriate way. Um, that again, I'm not I'm not trying to shoehorn that into the text, but that that is the outflow of the text. That's the first thing. Second thing is um, I I preach Bible. Um, I go through books. Um, I do um, more topically related sermons, but <laughs> I'm not very comfortable doing that anymore. It's more like, well, we'll, we'll you know, the opportunity is going to come. If I have something that's really under my skin, I'm just looking for where does that naturally arise from the text? Because it's going to come up. You know, um, the Bible is an organic whole. And um, so, uh, so, you know, sermons through the text is very much my bread and butter at this point. Um, and then the third thing I would say is, um, uh, and this is one of the reasons that I'm so cherished the Reformed tradition, is that the Reformed tradition is an, ec is an ecumenical tradition in the sense that we're looking at, yes, we're looking at scripture, but we're also looking at the church fathers. We're also looking at the magisterial reformers. We're also looking about at the seminal theologians of the United States, that I am in a true, in the best sense of the word, tradition, and um, that the confessional documents of the reformed faith are a good and a solid guide. I have never yet been misled by the confessional statements of the reformed tradition um that and 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 hundreds of times have oh wait yeah i guess i knew that because i memorized that catechism question but i never thought about this verse in connection with that's that's amazing nobody ever told me that but it was there all the time and so that kind of discovery of oh yeah you know the the Westminster divines knew what they were talking about. The RP um, elder, the the ruling and teaching elders who have gone before me were very thoughtful and very careful and did not go beyond scripture. That's the other thing is, I don't want to speculate. I don't want to base my arguments on experience. You know, mm -hmm. um, he he lives. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives in my heart. Great. That's wonderful, but that's not exegetical. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, you don't believe because I tell you to believe. Mm -hmm. You believe because God is at work in you by His Word and Spirit. And so, yeah, I just uh, I, I remember hearing a hearing a uh, story. It was actually a a um, Easter Sunday sermon that uh, one pastor preached, and um, he, and he said. Um, and he told the story about the pastor who went up and um, how, how do I know that Jesus is alive? Because he's alive in my heart. And, and then as he, as the, as this man was preaching, he began to realize, Oh, he believes in a spiritual, not a bodily resurrection. Hmm. And it was such a short trip from experiential Christianity, which I, I believe with all my heart you know experiential calvinism is kind of that's where i want to live but you lead with the doctrine you teach the doctrine and then you apply it experientially in the lives of god's people but this guy you know and it was a very experientially based preaching style anyway and then he 
this particular year, all of a sudden, like three quarters of the way through the sermon, you realize that he's saying Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead. Jesus is alive in my memory. You know, Jesus is, and and it was just a very, a very odd thing that, you know, it, and it, again, it was in the context, it was, it was um, experience without doctrine as a foundation and a base. So, I, I, you know, so I, I tell guys, you know, know your systematic theology, so you're not a heretic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, and and particularly when it comes to things like the Trinity or the, um, uh, you know, Christ is two natures in one person. You get into some of this stuff, like you get very far off the path. You start using novel language, you're going to find yourself in trouble real quickly. Um, Amen to that. And so, and so that, that's why seminary is important. That's why I believe in the Presbyterian tradition of an educated clergy. Hmm. That clergy then needs to remember that I have had my head crammed with knowledge. Now I need to do what Paul calls working out my salvation with fear and trembling. And I need to be, you know, receptive to the wisdom of the, of my fellow elders, the wisdom of the little old ladies at church that are like, you didn't hit that one right, son. Oh, well, tell me more. Not, not, not being defensive. You know, God's word isn't going anywhere, but my words can be a lot better. Help, Help me understand what, what, what was it, you know, drawing out. And I don't like to do that on Sundays. I say, wait till Tuesday by Tuesday. I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to rip it apart right alongside you. You know, sure. don't do it coming out of church. That's kind of sure. my advice. And, yeah. Uh, we've got a, we've got a guy at uh, Marion um, who's read through the Bible um, 150 times thereabouts. Uh, uh, and uh, he always gracious, not always, I shouldn't say always. That makes me sound like I'm never preaching well, <laughs> um, but he will, um, regularly come like i think you, you you missed this here a little bit and i was like well you know you would know you, you've read through the scriptures 150 times so i find it uh, a real joy um, to have people like that yeah. one of the things that you're saying kind of makes me think about uh, what the puritans talked about when it comes to meditation um particularly on the scriptures would be that uh, meditation when we think about the word of god you know it goes into the mind down to the heart out through the hands so uh-huh, there's this right. you know thinking feeling and doing kind of a thing yeah, and we yeah. really and it, need and all it begins three. with thinking yeah. and that mm-hmm. that's really that's really my central point is it doesn't begin with with feeling mm-hmm. feeling is tremendously mm-hmm. important but here here's a word i i used to talk a lot about emotions and i really i don't even like that word anymore because emotions happen to you, right? It's it, but, but, and this is influence of the Puritans, I'm sure, but, but, but the word affections is emotions um, directed by and confirmed by thinking. Mm. Um, and so just that idea of rich and focused and faithful affections um emotion yeah emotions happen every day i think i'm a pretty emotional guy sometimes that's a good thing sometimes that's a bad thing sometimes my emotions are taking me directly away from what the truth is and so i don't begin with my heart and i don't even and again with with my feelings 
I begin with what is true. And now, Lord, help me to run in my emotions in that direction. And that's what affections are for me is um, they're emotions that are aimed. Mm -hmm. They're emotions that are that have a, a bullseye in mind. You know, we're getting to this point uh, where where these affections are ought to land, whether mm -hmm. that's affections for my wife or my family, you know, or whether that's affections for my um, uh, for my Lord, that this is where these ought to land. That's good stuff. Yeah, you you hit on the things I was going to follow up with. So thank you for that. Um, one of the things I don't think we've asked this question of anybody yet. I don't even know if we've had such one on here, uh, but uh, you did as as already has been actually hinted at. You did grow up a PK, as they're called, a, a pastor's kid. And yeah. And so we're just, we're curious. We like asking, for instance, like guys who are associates or seniors who have associates, kind of what team ministry is like. Uh, and so likewise, um, those who we know at least grew up pastor's kids, just what were some of the blessings and challenges of that first off? And then we'll have a couple follow-up questions. Yeah. Um, so my father was first an associate pastor at the um, North side Indianapolis RP church then was the senior pastor for a while. Um, and, uh, so growing up, uh, oh, and another thing that's important to know about my story is when I was about 12, uh, my dad had been a, uh, public school teacher for about 20 years at that point and was now transitioning into the pastorate. And so it was a, it was a multi-year process of him essentially going to seminary on the side while he was also, um, um, while he was also teaching as a public school teacher. Yeah. I heard uh, he would ride the bus from Indianapolis to Pittsburgh. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so then, then the, the last year, so he decided he was not going for a master of divinity degree. That was the council from the presbytery. He already had a master's degree, but he did need to complete a full year at the reformed Presbyterian seminary. So our family actually moved into the North side church building, uh, up in the top floor, we basically became the caretakers of the church for about, it wound up being about four years, five years that we lived there. Uh, yes. And then he would, they had a Tuesday through Friday class schedule. So he would ride out on the Greyhound on, on uh, Monday, be there for the week and then, you know, come home on, on Saturday so he could be there for worship on Sunday. So it, it was a crazy schedule, but between our family and I would not advise it. It's, I think if, I don't think he would advise it either, but it was a unique opportunity for me, 12, 14, 15 years old, uh, to both observe someone who was settled in a good career. My dad, my dad was a good teacher. He was working his way up through the ranks. Um, I think was, you know, comf was comfortable, but was also being more and more entranced by the call to be engaged in the kingdom of God that um, um, and that God was calling him into that, that's that form of service. So I remember when I was 12, the, um, um, uh, my dad found a uh, Bible college that was actually just starting up in Indianapolis. And he said, Brad, you and I are going to go. It didn't really give me a choice. Um, you and I are going to go to this 7 a.m. Saturday, 7 a.m. Greek class. And uh, I find I negotiate a little bit. I said, well, dad, can we at least go out for breakfast? 
He's like, oh, yeah, 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 we can do that. So we'd get up at 6 a.m., go to Waffle House. And uh, that was a, that was the highlight of my week. Um, and then go and then we'd learn Greek. And it came very easily for me, frustratingly easy from his perspective for me. Uh, and so I, I, I look back, I really think I took about took basic Greek at least four different times. And that was really helpful and really, I think, has made the languages much more. It's not that I can like sit down and just read, you know, visually. I I mean, it's not that I've never really developed that skill. But just to be able to move easily between the English and the Greek. And um, I think, um, yeah, so that that was that was interesting. Um, So I think let me. Try, try to bring it to, to a point. And that is, so I, you know, when I was 12, probably 14, he was really moving into the pastorate. And there were a couple hard experiences that I had. Uh, one of the things I was surprised at was people who didn't want to talk to my dad would talk to me and tell me to tell my dad something. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't believe it. Like, really? And, you know, we had a family meeting and dad said, if that ever happens, you say, you need to go talk to my dad about that. And I did that numerous times. And that was really helpful. Another thing, and I think this is true of all families, but especially of pastors families is there is the importance of the cone of, of confidentiality. The things that are in here are confidential and it's damaging to the family if either I break confidence or if people are trying to horn in and find out the things that need to be confidential in our family. That, that was another, another thing. And I've always been, I was a journalist, you know, I'm kind of into busting through the cone of confidentiality. That, that's how I'm wired. I don't, I don't have very many secrets at all, but I've had to learn that. Um, you know, both with my mom um, and now, you know, with my family as well, how important it is. No, that that's not that's not public information. Um, and then how does something that is confidential then appropriately brought to the congregation, whether it's a prayer request or whether it's tensions in the family or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. And uh, uh, so that was uh, that's that that would be another thing I'd say is. And in terms of someone who's not, you know, who's, how do you interact with the family, you know, with the pastor's family, it's give them their space, give them, you know, there are things going on in the background that you don't know, you don't understand. And um, to press and to ask prying questions, you may get answers, but that's not going to be helpful to the family. Um Sorry, my trash is being emptied here. Um, yeah, in the I'm background. in the backgrounds. So, I'm in um, the backgrounds. Uh, so anyway, that that was uh, that was an interesting. Um, that's an interesting thing. And then I think uh, the other thing I would say is, um, and this is again for people in the congregation, is recognize that there is an expectation, not very often stated, but an expectation. Nonetheless, that the pastor's kids will be models. And particularly if they're struggling in their faith, that is a precedent. 
that, um, and I'm going to try not to get emotional here, but I've seen this again and again with pastors, kids, especially the ones that are trying to figure out if they even believe in Jesus. And now, son, don't do that. You're going to bring shame to the family. Or, you know, well, you know, you should be, you know, from a member of the congregation, you, you should be behaving nicer than you are. And everything in that kid, and this was not me, but I, I've talked to a lot of PKs, and everything in them is like, <clears throat> you know, and I am in a prison, and I want to get away from this family because, you know, and so I think that I've come to have a real, and I've cried with several pastors' kids, both who are in the faith and who are now outside of the faith. Mm-hmm. Um because at the end of the day, it's not by putting on a suit that you that you find joy in Jesus. It's not by your last name. I've talked to people who I think at times have been in bondage by their last name because they came from one of those great grand families. Um, but, dude, that's not going to save your soul. The question is, are you united to Christ by faith alone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I don't know if you know this, Brad, but I I grew up as a pastor's kid as well. Did you? Okay, uh, no, I didn't. So know so, that. so a lot of the things that you're saying, I'm like, yeah, that that tracks uh, experientially. Um, so not to use the word emotion, but I I feel what you're saying. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> um, and and one of the things is, I guess this will go into the next uh, follow up question is uh, how how members ought to relate to uh, the children of our pastors, and one of the things that I've noticed is, uh, you know, a lot of the other kids um, they'll get a lot of focus when it comes to you know trying to disciple um them but the pastor's kids tend to get kind of glazed over a little bit because they think oh well you know uh, they're the pastor's kids that they've got it of course um which is not necessarily true yeah right so um, <laughs> Very good. most definitely yeah so so what are what are ways that uh, people ought to be trying to relate to um the pastor's kids and what are some things that uh, they ought to avoid? And you, you've already started to touch on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, they're just regular, normal kids. There's nothing, you know, there's no, there's no holy DNA involved. Um, the, the, the pastor's home can be very chaotic at times, um, sometimes hypocritical. You know, I don't always do the things that I tell everybody they ought to do, um, you know, um, uh, and and so just let them be kids. I think that's that. And, and just be a good friend, you know, let them have, you know, let them have boundaries, let them, you know, um, let them make mistakes. Don't, don't, um, I mean, at some level, it is true that you know, whatever our kids do at some level reflects on the parents, but minimize that. Don't call it out. Just let it be. I've been so grateful. We've had, we've had our, my family. Now we've been in Topeka for 13 years and I just am so grateful for the, the space that the congregation has given to my family to, you know, to go through, to go through our quirks you know, to struggle sometimes, you know, and, uh, and I think my kid, I think my kids would tell you that, um, um, you know, the congregation 
you know, we've had great friends in the congregation. So I think that's, I think that's an important piece. And I think then also, um, I would say to just make sure that the kids, that the, that the PKs in the congregation are at least invited into the other places where, you know, and I, and I've talked about this with my kids. I'm like, guys, I get it. You know, mentoring people is my job. And when I try to mentor you, I get it that it feels like, Oh, now I'm dad's project. And so, and, and, and maybe even more so with, with my wife, you know, that, and the best thing that my wife can do is have friends that, you know, friendships that don't involve me. And the best thing that my wife can do is have friends outside of the church. She's talked about how, you know, at times it feels like there's politics and how much time do I spend with this woman versus that woman. And the, it's such a relief to just not have to worry about that dimension with my really, you know, with my, with these friends from my past or whatever. Uh, and so I think that that's a dynamic that is, is there. Um, she didn't sign up to be the pastor's wife. She went with the pastor who took a job. Um, and so, and so, you know, she will serve my kids very joyfully serve in the church, but I try to always remind people, but you hired me, you know, and then here's, and then, and then my family came with me. There's no other job like that, you know, where you hire the person and then now there's a job description for all the members of his family. Well, other than uh, the president of the United States, you know. Well, so yeah. we're, we're pretty similar, like pastors and right. presidents. They're pretty close, <laughs> right, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I think one of the things that you're saying it, it certainly applies to the the pastor's kids, the pastor's wife, and in some degree, it also applies to the uh, elders um, and their family as well. Um, that I've yeah. noticed. But we'll go ahead and uh, try and uh, land the plane here. We've got a couple more uh, just questions for you. One, this uh, again was sent to us by a listener. What are maybe um, just three ways that our listeners can be praying for the Topeka congregation. Yeah, I think, um, so first thing I'd mention is, uh, our church has had a real zeal and a real interest in, um, missions, um, in our, across our denomination. And I would say both, both global missions to a lesser extent, uh, home missions as well. We're very interested in church planting. Uh, we have, uh, one of our elders who's, currently on a commission uh, to, to uh, work with a church planting opportunity in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're excited about that. So I would say just pray for our church. Uh, we have people who are interested in potentially serving in missions. Uh, we have people who um, maybe they're not quite there, but uh, um, God's working on them and there's, there's potential there. Uh, um, our young people, several of them have found ways to serve missions in real practical ways. So that would be one area is just that we would be attentive to how God could, you know, he's ministered to us. Now, how does he minister through us, whether that's in church planting, whether that's in personal discipleship uh, of other people in our community, uh, whether that's just bringing bringing up jesus in a conversation but just to have that mission mindset i think that would be one thing 
Uh, a second thing is uh, we're really praying. We, we've had a number of our children who've kind of grown up and gone out. Um, uh, my second child is headed off to college here in about two, a week and a half. And uh, so we're, you know, our, our kids have aged out and our, the numbers in our uh, Sunday school program have gone down notably. And so we're praying that the Lord will, uh, we're, we're praying that God will bring in families to our congregation. And so, and particularly just that we can invest in children. Uh, so that's another kind of practical prayer request. Um, and then uh, I guess the third thing is, is, uh, um, and, and I, I, this is general, but I, it's just, I just see how easy it is. Remember where Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And how that, 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 that the spirit of Christ would show up week by week by week, that we would see the potency of the regular means of grace. Those, those are two words I've kind of landed on that, you know, we're not after some extra special I don't really like anything extra special, or maybe I don't even like special. I like normal, but normal is is transformational. Normal is potent, and that the ordinary means of grace are the means of grace that God is using to gather out from among all the nations a people to himself who now are going to have to live in perpetual conflict with the world, who now, even as their bodies grow older, and even as, you know, there's a diffusion, if you will, of focus in their lives, there's nonetheless a heightened focus on the person of Christ. And uh, I, I love, I have it sitting here on my desk, um, my old, now old copy of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, I always recommend the Hazel Baker edition. It's a modern language, Pilgrim's Progress. Um, I've actually started reading the second part, uh, Christiana's Journey. Uh, which actually has a lot more a lot more ecclesiology in it than part one, hmm. and uh, um, among other things, the four sons that Christian and Christiana have all get married along the way, and uh, so that that's been fun, and just to see the different people that help them. If Christian was the trailblazer, now Christiana and the children are coming along, um, blessed by the legacy. And the reputation that Christian left behind as he went on his journey himself. Um, and so, um, anyway, long answer to your question, but I think that that's a, um, I want that for our congregation week in, week out. Um, and, uh, you know, and I just see the, 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 the flesh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is strong. You know, um, with my mind, I serve the law of Christ, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And how is it that we know more clearly in today's crazy world who we are, whose we are? And therefore, it is our our glory and our joy to worship at his footstool. Now I'm preaching. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's all good. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Those were helpful. All right. Well, we have come to the time now of our fun mystery theological question. Oh, dear. I like saw this on us. your list and I said, oh, brother, what is this going to be? <laughs> no, this one won't be too bad. Um, 
So, I mean, it is kind of funny, though, because you mentioned earlier, uh, we want to be beware of being false prophets and making predictions. So um, I don't I don't think this is making prediction per se, but it's it is speaking about future events. What we want to solve over these next four episodes is does the Bible teach that there will be a future mass conversion of ethnic Jews? That's, oh, that's the question. Or does the Bible teach that there will be a future mass conversion of ethnic Jews? And obviously, we have primarily Romans eleven in mind, yeah. though that wouldn't yeah, be the that's only exactly, text. That's but... where I was flipping in my Bible. Sure, uh, sure. So yeah. there are different views on that. Obviously, just to let our listeners know, some people would would hold that uh, you know. Calvin's old view that all Israel there is speaking about Jew and Gentile together. Others would 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 see that the the fullness of the Jews is speaking about the the complete number of the elect who are just brought in during the uh, time between the first and second coming of Christ. Others, the older Puritan view, would be that it that it does clearly teach a future ethnic regathering that is. Uh, on scale with their casting off. So those those would be some of the views and why we would ask such a question as this. So what, yeah, what does Brad Johnson that's a great say? that's a great question for me, but also I'll be listening to your next four podcasts. That's a, that's <laughs> that's very very intriguing to think about. Um and and I think I would say that I would that I would tend toward the puritan view um that yes, there is uh, so let, let me back up and say First of all, um, um, cultural context, right? What, 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 when the New Testament writers are writing to their original audience, particularly those who are writing when the temple is still in operation, that what you have in the in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem is an exclusion of Gentiles, um, and Paul talks about and um, about the breaking down the, the the wall of partition. Um, and so I think that the thrust of the New Testament and the thrust of my eschatology would be that that barrier has been removed. And in fact, I've been amazed um, in previous pastor in Walton, New York. I I at one point kind of sat back and I said, whoa, we have four four ethnic Jewish people in our congregation. I didn't even, you know, didn't even realize that. Did you know there are more Jewish people? And I, I think this is still the case who live in the state of New York than live in the nation of Israel. Hmm. I, uh, I actually did know that because I was I was in New York uh, over at White Lake and uh-huh. a lot of their billboards are actually in Hebrew. Yes. Which yes, is quite yes. interesting. And, and that's where I, where I was as well. And uh, so I was there once when uh, one of their camps was just about to open. And uh, I bet I saw 45, 15 passenger vans come rolling through and then just hordes of 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 jewish children coming out and uh it was it was exciting uh, you know uh again just to think back to um you, you know to the uh, um you know to world war ii and to all the uh concentration camps you know and just to see wow that but also in my heart to say you know may they know their messiah um i one time was 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 driving through that area, um, and uh, there was a there was a uh, an ortho, uh, ultra orthodox guy who was walking on the road uh, because it was the Sabbath. I could drive on the Sabbath, 
Um, and he could drive with me, but he couldn't drive because that was a sin. Because uh, I was a Gentile, you know, it was just a really interesting mindset. But I, so we weren't together very long, but probably 15 minutes we talked. And, you know, just to see how different our religions were. That was, that was one of the, one of the things that I saw. But, but I think that, you know, the, 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 the tearing down of the partition means Jews and Gentiles together. And so I think that we need to be careful about, you know, somehow there is a, there is any kind of segregation that's taking place. But I think Romans 11 and several other places as well, where, where, where Paul is, is very hopeful and I don't have any problem saying prophesying that there is coming uh, something remarkable. And let me say again, I'll, I'll, I'll listen with interest. But uh, as I listen to um, One for Israel, if you're not familiar with their podcast, um, there's a there's an evangelical seminary in in Nazareth, and they over the last probably five five years now have had a phenomenal impact through social media. One of the things that they struggle struggle with is because they don't have free speech laws that we have here, because there's just so much more segregation of society in Israel. Um, and uh, the gospel, they're, they're, they're packaging the gospel in social media sound bites, and those are being listened to by, by tens of thousands of Jewish people especially young people. And uh, there's a guy that I follow on YouTube who he goes out every day into um, the old city of Jerusalem and just engages people. And uh, at first it was pretty hostile, but now they're now it's just like, Oh yeah, you know, it's a free country and you know, let's talk. And so religious Jews or Orthodox Jews and Messianic Jews, I think there's, there's more openness than Certainly when I, you know, when I started going to Israel, you know, 20 or 25 years ago. Uh, uh, so I think, you know, again, it, so it's not, oh, Jews over against Gentiles. It's that, it's that Gentiles have been grafted in, that there is a, a church that's, that's trusting in Christ. And now let's see that with all of its complexity expanded to include in the present day, many, many, many um, I, I've wrestled with, you know, uh, the term, do I, do I need to say, do they need to say I am now a Christian? Well, the word Christians only used three times in the Bible. Um, Messianic Jew. What does that mean? What does it mean to be Jewish? Um, uh, does your mom have to be Jewish in order for you to be Jewish? How do you convert to Judaism? Um, the different uh, denominations of modern Judaism, um, uh, uh, the ignorance of Tanakh uh, among religious Jews has been somewhat shocking to me. I think there's a whole. You guys have a whole lot of interesting questions that I hope you'll 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 try to unpack there. Because uh, I think there's there's some neat things that are, that are happening, but 
Yeah, so we have uh, three main views, four guests. There can only be one majority. So this time in September, okay. we'll be able to figure out uh, the definitive answer. Oh, we'll answer know by September. Great. Absolutely. Yeah. Glad yeah. to know. Well, um, we'll we'll land this plane. Before I do, Brad, you mentioned that uh, your mom lived in Marion. Do you have any fun Marion factoids for us? Oh, let's see. Um, yes. So for context here, uh, every four years we come to uh, I can I guess I can call it the um, well at least the Hoosier Mecca um, uh, of Marion, Indiana. The Promised uh, Land of the North is uh, is what I've uh, there you go. I love it. Marion. And uh, but for the international conference, planning to be there next year, mm-hmm. just got the dates recently. Um, and uh, but we would drive up and I, I'm pretty sure it's Washington Street there. But anyway, the main drag right by Indiana Wesleyan. A couple times a year, uh, three times a year, easily, we would we would drive up through there. And uh, I wasn't aware of a single reformed mm-hmm. congregation anywhere in the area. Um, Indiana Wesleyan was this podunk little little rural college and uh um then uh, got married moved away and that was right around the time that indian wesleyan began to expand mm-hmm. um so i don't have a lot of church things um um i think uh, uh one thing that that i'll say is my mom went to uh um disciples of christ church um her whole growing up experience very faithful um, and then heard the gospel when uh, when she was in was in uh, nursing school, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe it was, her, you know, her, her blindness, but I'm not sure that she heard the gospel. So that's exciting that there's mm-hmm. um, that, you know, that God is bringing many people a return to the gospel. That's not just in Marion. But mm-hmm. uh, but another thing is uh, my memory is that the. um the the courthouse square downtown marion had the most amazing christmas decorations hmm. uh when i was a kid and then i think for political reasons they moved it off the square and now there's that there's a there's some kind of a walk right oh now. yeah over on uh, matter park there's uh yeah. there's quite the light show there mm-hmm. yeah yeah so that that was that, that that was worth coming to marion just for that yeah, they, uh, they they expanded outside of Matter Park, and there's uh, actually some lights right across the Mississippi River, which we can kind of see from our house. And there's this like uh, big light dragon that's there from kind of Thanksgiving to halfway through January. So my kids love to look at the little light dragon here in Maryland. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So yeah, we've got the best light show in uh, in America, everybody. Yeah. Obviously, and so. and let let me tell you one <laughs> other thing that uh, this is a little maybe a little more trivia related, but uh, my great grandfather. Uh, um, um, Everett Leslie Butler was a World War One veteran, and um, um, the one of I think it was twenty um, World War One. They called them sanitariums across the the U.S. in the, day, the days after World War One. All these guys, all our soldiers, were coming back from World War One with PTSD. Um, nobody really understood it. They just were broken. Um, and so at one point there were several thousand, um, world war one vets that were living out there on the East side of Marion. Um, and, uh, um, it's, it was just a fascinating thing as I began to read about it. There's a, there's a good article. Um, I don't remember what the title of it is, but anyway, on the Marion sanitarium, world war one sanitarium on wikipedia hmm. well i'll have to um, definitely look that up that sounds yeah because it was fascinating anyway 
So I went out and I did not realize just how many um, uh, the, the beautiful uh, um, soldier veteran cemetery mm-hmm. out there on the east side of Marion. Um, I've gone out there several times and walked walked through there. Um, um, and then and then the last thing I'll say is my grandfather is also now buried uh, in the I think it's the Oddfellows Cemetery. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's buried about about 300 feet from the shore of the Mississippi hmm. there. And, uh, and, and he, he said the reason that we selected this spot was so I could go out and check on the fish on a regular basis. <laughs> I said, grandpa, you're not going to be there. And he agreed, but he still thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, uh, but anyway, they're buried, right? Uh, so my grandma's still living with my parents in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. but, uh, my grandfather's buried there. Um, I, I was a, uh, Paul Bear in 2019 at okay. his at his funeral, and uh, about 300 feet from the edge of the river up there. So All those right. are some special things to. to well, remember. it's fun to uh, talk about uh, my my hometown, a place that I uh, love and adore, with uh, someone else who is familiar with it. And yeah. we do uh, thank you for being a guest on uh, this episode of the Blue Banter podcast. Our guest has been Brad Johnston, pastor of Topeka Reformed Presbyterian Church in Topeka, Kansas. If you could uh, rate and review us on iTunes, we'd greatly appreciate that. Share this episode on social media. If you have a question you would like us to ask the pastors that we interview, or if you would like us to, or like to suggest to us that we interview your pastor, you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com, bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. And, and uh, ooh, I messed this up. Joseph, I forgot what I was saying. Let me try that again. Whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God.